We are in a world which is incredibly more and more interconnected. And if we navigate this in silos and we choose ignorance and not to be aware of our participation in that, then we become kind of like a cancer on humanity and on the planet. So we have more responsibility than any other generation ever has before, really ever. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. I have a fantastic guest today, and we have already met in two different countries. I met her in Cyprus when she came to speak at a Creative Women conference, and then I met her again in London not long ago when she was speaking at the Global Woman conference in January. And I thought this lady is so interesting. I really, really need to have her on my podcast. And she said yes. Marianne Thompson-Frank is the president and co-founder of the Memnosign Institute. We're going to talk about that because I want to know more about uh, what it is. She's a sculptor, a writer, a public speaker and a humanitarian. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Marianne Thompson-Frank. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. So you are doing all these things and they are obviously always connected to travel because you do it in all sorts of different places. Would you be a traveler if it wasn't for work? I think absolutely. You know, um, I was born in Mexico City and adopted when I was five days old. So my first international flight was as a five day old. And I guess I never stopped. (laughs) I've now been on all parts of the globe. And, you know, when I travel somewhere, you know, on one hand, yes, there's taste, there's sounds, there's music, all sorts of unique things. But then there's also innovations, you know, for example, like when I go to Japan or Germany, they have, you know, th- you know, things like um, basically elevators and escalators that only operate when a motion detector notices you. And, you know, and you think in my country, we have this technology, but we don't use it that way. So why not? You know, so part of like travel is you go somewhere and you see how other people are innovating. And it, it really it's enlightening and it, and it, it excites you to innovate as well. Yes, you get inspired when you see what other people do or what is actually possible. Now, mm-hmm. you've already asked my usual question that I mostly asked at the beginning. When was your first flight? And you we, we were you were five days old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about this? That you like uh, you were adopted by parents in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a different era of time. You know, both my parents had tried to. Um, adopt children the year before in 1976. And within a week of adopting this pair of African-American twins, they were told they were the wrong race. And they had already named them, bought twin beds, and it was painful. And they had really kind of given up on the ability to have a child that would be adopted. But a good friend of theirs, Father William Watson, he was called Our Little Children of the World Orphanages. And he has these orphanages all over the world. And a child would come in whatever age he had them. And then when they got to 12th grade, they would give about two to three years of helping to raise other kids. And the miracle was he got them all in college. And he didn't believe in doing adoption because it would understandably make the kids who weren't selected feel bad. And he didn't want them to think there was something wrong with them. So he told my parents down. But I was born on Mother's Day in 1977 at 7-11 a.m. And he said, God has other plans for this girl because my family's business was 7-Eleven. So, you know, the humility of that for me was that when you know that everything you've been given, 
every opportunity, every person you've met, your education. And in my case, all the things that helped save my life multiple times over from, I was one of those kids that would spend a ton of time, you know, in the uh, children's hospital because of asthma and migraines. You're talking months at a time, you know, so all of those things that saved my life and all those opportunities that came because of one minute that I did nothing to earn. So I have to feel a sense of great responsibility for that. And that changes. And and, in regards to this show, you know, when I started visiting Mexico, one of the best things my parents did, and I encourage all parents everywhere when you travel, don't hide poverty from your children. Yeah, my parents let me see it. And it helped me understand while as a little kid, I could be regarded as a child art protege. I'd see children that were much better at art than me trying to sell pottery and, you know, thinking, dear God, let me sell this thing so that I can eat this week. And it was very humbling. So, you know, it's allowed me to go through life with two kind of mentalities. There's the privileged person, the educated person, the world wise person that I am. But there's also the awareness that I could have been that kid seeing this very snooty tourist go by. And I'd say, if I were her, I'd do this. And then the challenge is whatever that is, is what I need to do with my life. So it it kind of gave me from the beginning a, a really unique way to see and experience the world. Wow, that's amazing because I, I made a post on Facebook during the time when the, the earthquake in Turkey had hit at the beginning. And I, I was saying how helpless I feel, you know, that I'm sitting here in my warm house, knowing that these people are either looking for loved ones or they're cold or they don't have anything to eat. And then somebody replied and said to me, we were, we were given this gift of life and it is our duty to to use it you know it, it doesn't help other people if we don't live so what you are saying about your the opportunity that you were given that is 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 really so much it's so true and also what you're saying that you know we have uh, as as westerns or as as people rich people or or whatever we want to be called we can be very arrogant towards people who are just as capable as we are, or even more, but uh, they just happen to be born in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you travel the world, one of the most important things I tell people is the most intelligent people I've met in my life are quite often in struggling third world situations. You know, and they have to be because if you're not using your brain to its fullest capacity, you don't survive. Whereas in some Western world countries, yeah, you can kind of skirt by putting, you know, sixty percent, eighty percent. We've all known people who only put so much out there, you know. But you go into these third world situations, and if they are not using a hundred percent of every God given gift that they have, they do not survive. And that could be artistic, that could be mathematics, that could be engineering. The things that I've seen people come up with, um, innovations in their communities, like when I was in Rwanda, uh, one time, you know, I, you know, we were, we met the Batwa people. And before going there, I had always assumed it was just the Rwandese. And those of you that, you know, know history, um, know that sadly there was a genocide there between the Hutu and Tutsi. And that that was a lie the Belgians had created that there really was no Hutu and Tutsi. They were all Rwandese. Um, you know, the Hutu had more, um, broader noses, darker skin. Hutu had smaller noses, lighter skin, but they were all one tribe. But there actually was a secondary tribe, and that was the Batwa, which most people know as the Pygmy. 
And we went there and we met them and we saw just how innovative they were. And they were in a situation where they had been caught up in a genocide that actually had nothing to do with them. They had been the forest people that, had, you know, subsisted in the rainforest in the past. And whatever they needed, they picked it off the tree or they grew it or they hunted it. And then they were told in the middle of genocide, you have to join the modern world. Good luck. No money, no resources, just kicked out of the forest. Good luck. And by the way, here's a genocide. Try and survive this. <laughs> and yet, you know, we went in and we met these people that, you know, we said, what is one thing we could do for you? Well, they had been so innovative. They had taught themselves ceramics, but the genocide had resulted in destroying their kiln. And they said, look, we just need to fix the kiln. And it really touched me deeply because they were saying, this is the one thing that gets us off this, you know, wheel. We fix the kiln, we can fire our pottery, we can make money again, we can. And so we did that, but they reported to us, they had been so smart with how they used the money and they'd fixed portions of the kiln at a certain point in time so they could build other things and do other stuff. I mean, they basically almost quadrupled the money. You know, and and that was the intelligence of these people to do that. It's just astounding. And you know, and the innovations that this, you know, this one tribe, they have a particular um the fungus, I think, and they use it because they say that people are not a grown adult until they've used this, you know, fungus. And it causes you to experience all of your life from everyone else's point of view. So if you've been someone who's helped people throughout your life and given positive emotions, you experience all that. If you've been someone who's taken advantage of others, you feel all the pain. But whatever it is, by the time you get to that age, they say you experience that. Well, now that that fungus they use is the number one thing they're using across the world in medical establishments to help people fight cocaine and heroin addiction. So, you know, when you travel, you go and you think that, you know, these, we like to dismiss them because we think, oh, we're the modern world. But when you go, there's such humility to be found and the ingenuity of the people and the ancient knowledge of the people as well. Fantastic. And yes, You just mentioned it, ancient knowledge. And I think that's very often forgotten and and um, there is so much there. And also you were talking about Africa and uh, unfortunately the world is often, not only in Africa, more, mostly it, it's just run by, by politicians that are not really that interested in their people. So I want to talk about the uh, Memnosine Institute. What is it? How did it start? And what do you do? Thank you. Well, the Menacing Institute, it, you know, it began um, largely from my childhood and that, you know, I was brought up in a family that was international corporation. And at that level, you see a lot of things. Um, and one day as a teenager, my father walked into the room and threw this book on the bed. And it was um, just, it was the, from the Alexis to the Olive Tree by Thomas Friedman. And he said, every child your age, and this was like around 1995, 1996, summer, uh, every child your age should read this book because this is the world you're going to inherit. Well, my father had never endorsed a book quite like that before, so I read it. And it was mind-blowing for me because it introduced me to the concept of globalization, the concept that what we do in our part of the world has a direct correlation um, economically with an many multiple other parts of the world and that we need to navigate that with a certain sense of responsibility. But what I found lacking was that it wasn't talking about, you know, I was talking about the economics, but it wasn't talking about the environmental factors. It wasn't talking about what I consider the human factor. And I look back at a time when I was a little, little kid and my 
you know, my father had come in and, you know, he had brought in what I called his homework and it was stacks of paper and I was being nosy and I looked through it and I found this graph and on one side, it had all these names of countries from around the world. On this side, I had numbers just, and I said, well, what is this about? And he said, well, we're going to manufacture something and they are saying it has to be done for $7 and 50 cents and no more than that. So I'm going to look on this and find what country is in that ballpark and how I go with them. And being a kid, everything's black and white and simple. I looked on that thing and I saw, you know, some countries ask for $2.15, $1.50. I said, well, Dad, why don't you go with someone asking for like, you know, $1.50 or $2.15 and give them the $7.50 that's pre-approved and change everybody's life. And I just skipped away. And my father came up to me and he said, wait a minute. And he got on his knees and he looked me in the eyes. He said, thank you for reminding me what my real job in this world is. And I forgot about it. I went on about my life. And back then later in high school, my father came into my room. And yeah, I'm just a typical teenager listening to my music. And he says, I need to tell you something. But that we did that. And they have built roads, schools. You know, they have built hospitals. Not a dime has been charity. They earned every cent and it transformed a life. And I don't know what place it is. I just know it's in South America, somewhere where they did it. But those two things were a wake up for me about how we are in a world which is incredibly more and more interconnected. And if we navigate this in silos and we choose ignorance and not to be aware of our participation in that, then we become kind of like a cancer on humanity and on the planet. So we have more responsibility than any other generation ever has before, really ever. And not only that, every one of your listeners right now, if they're listening to a podcast, they have access to a phone or to a computer with that technology, you have access, every one of you who's listening to this, you have access to more information than generations of kings, queens, presidents, prime ministers ever have before you. So, you know, the question is, what are we doing with that? So for me, the Mimicine Institute, it was about trying to help humanity navigate this increasingly globalized, interconnected world, which is not going to go backwards. The answer isn't to undo globalization. We are naturally becoming more interconnected and we will become more so. But our choice is to do it in a healthy way or unhealthy way. So we try and help people do that in the healthiest way possible. That's led us to negotiate the first treaty in 300 years between Hopi and Navajo nations. That's led us to get the most people to come forward for the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission to testify. That's helped us to innovate one of the number one initiatives fighting food waste in the United States, which about we're about $55 million worth pounds, sorry, pounds worth of food. Um, you know, we we're doing so many different things, but they all come out of the same thing. How do we help modern day humanity to navigate these challenges in the best way possible. Something that you just said made a real impression on me that um, we do know now we are responsible. We, we have more responsibility because pe before the internet, people knew less. People were, okay, people could listen to the news. They could watch stuff. They could listen to the radio. But now it's available 24-7 and there is mo no more excuse for not knowing. It's not just about the world, I believe. I think it's also 
about having self-responsibility for our bodies, for example, or for our, you know, for we, we can learn. There is so much stuff available that doesn't even cost anything. I think it is really, really time for everybody to wake up and understand that we are responsible for our lives and that we can create basically whatever we want. Absolutely. And it's really challenging for people when you're stuck and you're depressed and a lot of things are pushing against us. And all of us have been in that place, every one of us. But what I tell people is, become a conscious cultural creator in the sense that you are creating the culture that humanity is doing together and that our descendants, even if you choose not to have children, the descendants of humanity are going to inherit. So you're an ancestor. But with that understanding, what kind of culture do you want to create? You can either navigate it um, blindly with willful ignorance, or you can navigate it with a sense of responsibility, being consciously aware of your impact. And we become impactful in what we buy, what we do, what we say. You know, a lot of times, you know, I bumped into someone who had innate bigotry toward another demographic. And I would just say, well, do you want to go with me? I'll treat you to dinner. And we go somewhere and they try the food of that culture. You know, right now, if you're in a major city like London or Dallas or whatever, um, you know, and maybe you don't have the funds to travel around the world, well, you probably do have the funds to go and try snacks somewhere. You know, I mean, and you see people go, oh, well, I don't like those people, but I like their food. And I've actually heard that. <laughs> and then you go, well, you know, if you like their food, why don't you go check out this art exhibit around you? You know, because... You know, the world, you know, when you start exploring cultures and tastes and smells and music, you start recognizing our common humanity. There's a reason why. When there's a drum, everybody's heart starts going faster. You know, there's an instinct. There's a reason why when you taste chocolate, you smile. You know, that came from, you know, a tree, you know, in the Americas. You know, if I ask someone from Europe, what did your ancestors eat before the discovery of the Americas, India, or Africa? Most of them tell me, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> no potatoes, no tomatoes, no spice, what they eat. You know, but the point is, is that, you know, when we start looking at where we are today, we are really mixed in our foods and our music. Um, and we should celebrate that. Yeah, I so agree. I love that because I always say I was a tour guide for 11 years and I lived all over the world and I was also working as a conference interpreter. And again, I traveled all over the world. So uh, and my my take on all this is that whatever, wherever I go and whoever I start speaking to, I realize that we are all the same. We all have the same need. We want to be happy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, most people that I've met, they want to be able to live in peace. They want to know that they will have a secure place to live that's not going to fall on them or, you know, or be a threat. And they want to know that they will have a secure source of food, a secure source of clean water, and that they can find um, health care when needed and education. I mean, and if most people have those things, they are pretty much peaceful. You know, when we see wars, we so often judge all sides. But if we take a step back, um, yeah, I was at the United Nations a number of years ago, and there was someone from the American military that had been tasked with trying to identify the greatest threats to the United States government. And it was understood that whatever they did would pretty much be a threat to any major first world country. They said, you know, the end was climate change, but not because of all the reasons you think. They were explaining that when a catastrophe happens, you're going to have a mass exodus of people who are fleeing because of floods, droughts, 
or things like that. And that's when you have people coming in from Latin America into the United States. That's when you have people coming in from Africa or Turkey in, into Europe. Um, so if people are really concerned about that, then we have to go back and say, what is causing you know these issues? And how can we help people to feel secure and safe where they are? Because anyone that's been a parent or a loved child well, no, you don't want to take them away from their friends and their family and everything that they love. You know, you're only going to do that if that's the last option, if, you know, if they are truly unsafe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, instead of judging, you know, the, the migrants, we have to kind of go, how are we as the first world participating in causing some of this mass exodus? And, you know, and how can we celebrate their cultures and how, I mean, there's probably not a place that they are escaping from that if it weren't for the violence connected to politics, um, wouldn't be a destination place. Oftentimes just that it's beautiful. It's like when I've been in Mwanda or the Yucatan, it's gorgeous, you know, and, and you truly realize we as humanity live in paradise. We create the hell. <laughs> That is so, so very true. I mean, no one would ever leave their home or their environment if they weren't threatened by something. And that's that's something that always hurts me when I see people, you know, judging migrants and, and making them feel un, uncomfortable or unwelcome. I have never been able to understand that because they are not here or wherever they are. They're not here because they want to. They were they are here because they had they had no other choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and those of us that have been blessed like you and me to see different parts of the world, I think one of the best things we can do is help others who haven't been as privileged to get to learn about these cultures, the music, the food, you know, recognize they're bringing with them a richness, a, a beauty that we can add uh, to greater and richer own communities. True. And if and if we can't help them, some, because sometimes it's not always possible to help anybody, but at least we can be kind to them. Mm-hmm. So, Marianne, I want to talk a little bit. We've been very serious here now and talking about changing the world and what we can do. But I know that during your trips, you also have fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> what, well balanced. <laughs> what, do you have any fun travel stories? Many, many. Um, you know, we've, uh, you know, a lot of my, the, the travel I've done in my, my life has been linked to our humanitarian work with the Mimsy Institute. And what happens is that, you know, you find yourself somewhere because of work that you would not have necessarily sought out. Um, and then you just say, okay, well, let's add three or four days to this and just see what this place is about. <laughs> so, um, you know, that has taken me to um, caves in Malaysia, to, you know, being in, you know, I've, uh, one of the most amazing things, uh, we were asked uh, to bring the um, the chief of the Tolteca people, Teotihuacan, Valois Compentacutli, he's one of my spiritual teachers. You know, it's easier to call him Ricardo. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> um, but we were asked by the um, Shahrazad Arin, who is recognized by the Egyptian government as the descendant of a long line, we're talking thousands of years, of a family that's been responsible for the Sphinx in Egypt. And they hold the stories, the purpose, the building. I mean, just that they pass all this information out. And so we were asked, she wanted to do a cultural exchange. So we ended up bringing Ricardo to Egypt to meet her. And along the way, we ended up seeing many, many other things and many other teachers. Um, It was an eye-opening thing for me because I had assumed that everybody in Egypt was purely Muslim or else Coptic, Coptic Christian. And I didn't realize there were some who still practiced very, very ancient traditions. You know, seeing the, the exchange that these two pyramidal cultures shared 
uh, was just amazing. I mean, if anyone was to look online, you would find out that Orion's belt is what, you know, both the complexes in Teotihuacan as well as in um, Cairo, you know, they're both based on the same Orion's belt configuration. Um, but what I didn't expect was they had the same words for very complex ideas. And it was just a mar I mean, a marvel to sit there and, and watch them, you know, exchange these concepts. Egypt is a fascinating country. I used to do tours in Egypt when I was a tour guide. And, you know, just the vastness of traveling from people, you know, many people think Egypt is Cairo. But when you think of all the ancient sites of Luxor and the Valley of the Kings, the Valley exactly. of the Queen, and then you go all the way up to the to Abu Simbel and, and you see that that it's, it's a fascinating place. It's definitely one of the places in my life that I feel have been totally underestimated and, and kind of misunderstood because it's fantastic. Well, so true. And there's also so much information that people don't really learn about. And it's not hidden. It's just people kind of stop. You know, they go, oh, there's some pyramids there. And they stop, you know, you know, because we were doing this rather sacred exchange between these two different um, spiritual leaders, we were asked to go to six other places before seeing her. So those six other places took us throughout Egypt. Then when we finally got to Cairo, one of the things I had not known, you may know, but I didn't, you know, the temple, that's like the Pyramid of Giza is as goes down as deep under the earth as it goes above the earth. And so we were taken down there. And, you know, for anyone that's um, into the biblical text, you know, they know that Moses was raised as a pharaoh. And so he had, you know, he had to go through all these basically initiations to get that. So, and there's only one place where they do this. So when we went in there, it was very surreal knowing you're walking in this place for these legendary figures and you know, theology, you know, and it made it very real because, you know, when you're just reading the Bible, it feels a bit, I'm, I don't mean this in any, any um, disrespectful way, but it's almost like a Greek mythology because you're like, okay, you know, somewhere in the ancient past, this thing was there. But, but when you're walking down, 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 and you're realizing that underneath is even older and more ancient than the pyramid and that these huge slabs of stone you know my in my family we we built a, a high rise here in Dallas and I got to learn the amount of you know weight that a single modern day crane can lift you know and, and we it cannot do this and yet you're deep under the ground and huge slabs of stone are perfectly aligned next to each other um, we're talking about things that are uh, like a hundred feet across, you know, next to each other. And then you go down under there and there's a well that goes even deeper. And next to it, there's a little room and your job was to basically go on your hands and knees, the length of this tunnel. And you go and you lay on your back with your head to a wall. And it's apparently where the, um, the family of the pharaohs would go and lie there to meditate. And they would lay there for apparently like a, a you know, a week, uh, we would lay there for about 20 minutes, but, and, but the, the humility of, you know, of lying there and knowing countless pharaohs had lain there, people that you've read about and the Bible have lain in this spot. It, it was, it was phenomenal. It is. And that my, my thought, wherever I go, when I see these places, I think, how on earth did they build this? How did they do this? I mean, when you, you were talking about the high rise and, and how difficult it is the cranes and the, you know, the machinery that we use and what they didn't have, or maybe they did, and we don't know. You know, one of the 
sites in my travels that really took my breath away. It's actually not in terms of megalithic. It's not huge. It's um, called Puma Pungu. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's in Bolivia. That's P-U-M-A and then space P-U-N-K-U. And the reason why it's so remarkable is that it is cut. So if you think of the capital letter H, all of these stones fit into each other perfectly. And so it's like H blocks and they're not just, they, they all have small cut wedges where they slide in. And again, how in the world this was done. And when we look under a microscope at it, it's smoother than a diamond saw and it's smoother than a laser. We don't know how they did that. And if you Google that, you'll see they have perfect concentric little circles that go into it, same length, you know, same diameter, you know, and, and you can see you, it's like a puzzle. All this must have fit together at some ancient time to do something. But, you know, you, you think about just what the technology was in the ancient past. And many people don't realize we have these amazing things around our world. So it's, um, it, again, it's humbling, but it's also so inspiring because you think, you know, with the limitations of what we presume they had. And then also maybe it should humble us another way in that, you know, they knew a lot that we still don't know. So it's easy as a modern day human being to kind of get egotistical and assume we're at the zenith of technology. <laughs> Whereas probably after traveling around the world, I'd say we our ancestors came across things that we've forgotten and have to relearn. Totally. I absolutely agree. Marianne, do you have a favorite place in this world? Is there any area in, in on, on, on the globe that you like to go back to? <laughs> well, you know, in terms of a deeply personal spiritual, you know, aspect of my life, um, the people in Teotihuacan, the Tolteca there, and not to be confused at all with the four agreements. Um, you know, that was kind of a new age person's take on something, but there was an actual tribe of people <laughs> that are Toltec and Teotihuacan. And I'm um, long before that book came out, we were working with them to fight for their human rights. And it's a deeply meaningful place. And it was painful to watch for many, many years because um, the United Nations gave people, uh, gave nations the responsibility of making sure that traditional indigenous people could have access to their traditional spiritual lands uh, for prayer purposes, and they were denying them. So we were involved in an amazing um, opportunity where we worked with a Manila collection out in, uh, so I, yeah, I guess it was, the, yeah, um, not the Manila collection, I'm so sorry. This was out in San Francisco. We're working with a collection out there from of Teotihuacan art. And the leading person on Teotihuacan work, you know, it said, this is, you know, th this culture is all dead. And as long as she said that no one existed, they couldn't have their human rights. So we ended up facilitating an opportunity because our our executive director, Philip Collins, is also one of the leading curators in the United States. So we worked with him. We were able to bring the Tolteca up and meet with the head curator of that museum in San Francisco. And she was so blown away by their knowledge, because when you look at these mosaics, it has the Fibonacci sequence, it has traditional herbal medicine, it has history, it has prophecy. In our modern minds, we tend to separate all that. And a lot of these other uh, cultures, they put, they piled on together in the same image. And, you know, they were so knowledgeable that she was able to tell us, you know, guess what? I'm wrong. They exist. And that simple thing from her, from an academic point of view, had huge, you know, seven different towns full of Tolteca suddenly, and that one just got their human rights to pray and their traditional land. You know, now when I go down there, it's so deeply meaningful because you will see people that are 
purely traditional Tolteca people that have become some version of Christianity, people that blend the two. Um, and they they all participate in such a beautiful way in that area. And uh, one of the most gorgeous things for any of your listeners that are wondering for a time, if you go there doing the solstice, the spring solstice um, equinox, you will see when they bring quartz crystals and they will all sit all over this pyramid. And when the sun goes straight on top of that pyramid, the entire thing turns into a rainbow prism. Yeah, astounding. So, you know, the, the kind of things that they do there, it's just, it's humbling. And I've been blessed to study with them since I was 15. I'm now 45. So, you know, it's uh, it's been a journey of knowing them. So I'd say that's a truly special place. And then in terms of just places that I have fun and enjoyment with, I love London. I love going to Bath. Um, I really enjoy Edinburgh. I feel like um, that is one of the few cities that in the United States, especially people don't think about and they really should go check it out. It's an amazing city in terms of where I constantly go back to. Uh, my family has places in Cuernavaca, Mexico, and we have places in um, in Snowmass Aspen. And so I love to ski. So you know, I do hard. too. I like variety. <laughs> I do too. I I think I think this is that this is the name of the game, isn't it? I don't think that we were all meant to be staying in the same place all the time. And I think <laughs> you know, it also, as we said at the beginning, traveling opens your horizon. It makes you feel humble. It makes you understand how small we are, really. And and uh, now my last question, because we're getting to the end, and I had to fill out the form yesterday, which really made me think, because the one question was. How do you see the future? And I thought, what am I going to write about? How do I see the future? My future, the future of the world. But um, what is coming up for Marianne Thompson Frank? And just combining this question, what can we all do to make the world a better place? You know, when we look at the future, the question to ask yourself is what future do you want it to be? I've been blessed to know some exceptional human beings in my life. And the ones, and this will sound morbid, it's not meant to be, but the ones that I've been with as they passed away that had the greatest peace and even a sense of joy were the ones that did two things. One, they weren't afraid of failure. They would take a flying leap and fail again and again and do it again and do it again until they had some kind of success. But they didn't go without regrets. And that was something my grandmother, Margaret Bill Thompson, would always say, you know, live your life without regret. You know, um, you're not going to regret any mistakes or failures. You're going to regret never trying. Um, but the other thing that I would say, you know, if about the future is create something. You know, I see all these things online about, oh, people aren't nice anymore. People aren't, well, then you be nice. You know, people aren't, you know, heartfelt. Well, then you be heartfelt. People don't go out of their way to do this one little thing. Well, then you do that one little thing. You know, that's, you know, if you see something lacking in this world, then that is your calling to fulfill it in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying you have to um, fix everything, but I'm saying if something really bugs you that seems to be lacking in society, then act on that. And every one of us has the capacity. Even if you have, you don't have a dime to give, if you're walking down the street and you see someone who's homeless, you can make eye contact and say, good afternoon. Because what that's really saying is, I recognize you're a human being. And that's something we have way too little of in this world. So, you know, those are the things I would impart to anyone trying to seek, you know, how they can make it. You know, as for myself, you know, um, along with those things, you know, I, uh, 
I have a, a company called Eco Eco that I've launched with a friend of mine, Tanya Arialis Rodriguez, who's traveled a lot with me. And we're focused on, you know, doing a lot of environmental responsible development and um, including solar farms and whatnot. Um, and then I also have a friend of mine, Kalu um, Ugormo, and we have, it's called UTF Holdings, and we're doing a lot of uh, investments um, that were basically in support of the sustainable development goals. And then with my husband, Joshua Raymond Frank, we're continuing to work with the Mendocino Institute. And we worked with a wonderful man named Keith Critchlow, who's from uh, the UK, who sadly passed away last year. Uh, but he designed the last buildings of his career um, for us. And he's a world famous architect um, in the past. Nothing would be built by the uh, UK government without his authorization. Um, he was the leading sacred geometrist in the world. So, you know, we have a million different things like that. And then at the same time, I'm working on some books, one with a friend, Morella Sula, CEO of um, A Global Woman. And it's all called The Feminine Front Line on Female Leadership. And then I'm working on another book called Crisis of Consciousness with Dr. Irvin Laszlo. So um, those books are coming down the pike. And um, as well as I'm working on a book called Southland, which is uh, based on my family history going back three generations to today, showing uh, basically uh, a legacy of working as activists in the world. So we're giving a shout out here to Mirella Sula because she's actually the one who got us together. I'm the regional director of the Global Woman Club Cyprus. And uh, that's how I saw you, met you again in London because you were on stage there. And um, <laughs> just to sum this up, because um, first of all, I want to apologize. I pronounced a memnosine. I said memnosine. So it's called Memnosine Institute. That's the one thing that I want to say. And to sum it up, what uh, Marianne Thompson Frank means, you know, by saying it's never be afraid of failure and be the change you want to see in the world. It's really simple, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, if you have a chance, the best education, if you can afford it, is to see some other place completely different. You know, I think that is so, so powerful, you know, and, um, you know, our Japan chapter, they have children from Israel and Palestine that come over there. And these kids, they're just in shock that some places so different, and they realize how similar they are by default, you know, and you know, that to me is, you know, Reverend Yana was the one that, that runs that. But that to me is a good example. Whatever you think is unsolvable or these people are so vastly different, well, go see something different. Go and, you know, and breathe in a different part of this world because it will broaden your mind and make you realize there are so many innovations that are possible in your own life you didn't realize were there. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys, Marianne Thompson-Frank. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you. Enjoyed it. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.